the History Channel original podcast. What has violence ever accomplished? What has it ever created? No martyr's cause has ever been stilled by an assassin's bullet. No wrongs have ever been righted by riot and civil disorders. A sniper is only a coward, not a hero. And an uncontrolled or uncontrollable mob is only the voice of madness, not the voice of the people. Monday, November 25th, 1963. Approximately a million people have lined the streets of Washington, D.C. to say a final goodbye to President John F. Kennedy. Tens of millions more follow the coverage on television. At 10.50 a.m., Jackie Kennedy, a black veil covering her face, emerges from the Capitol building accompanied by her late husband's brothers, Bobby and Ted. After lying in the East Room of the White House on Saturday, JFK's body had been moved to the Capitol Rotunda to lie in state on Sunday, allowing members of the public to pay their respects. Thousands had done so. A quarter of a million people braved near-freezing weather to pass by the dead president in tribute. Some waited for as long as 12 hours in a line that at times stretched for 10 miles. Now, the casket has been loaded onto a horse-drawn carriage called a caisson. It will travel from the Capitol to the White House, onto St. Matthew's Cathedral for a funeral service, and then a final trip to Arlington National Cemetery for the burial. Together, Jackie and her brothers-in-law begin the long march. Walking alongside them is an astonishing assemblage of foreign leaders, everyone from the Prime Minister of France to Prince Philip. After much debate, President Johnson and Lady Bird also join a portion of the walk. Here's historian Barbara Perry. The concern that Johnson himself had, that this was a possibly a conspiracy, that actually put a pall over the entire funeral, and that Lyndon Johnson then insisted that he and Lady Bird would march. That, of course, was very distressing to the Secret Service because they didn't know if there were still others out there wanting to engage in more mayhem against the U.S. government and its top leaders. At this time, much is still unknown about the motives of Lee Harvey Oswald. Did he act alone, or is he just one player in a larger scheme? And so marching in the funeral procession is a major risk for Johnson. What if another attack is in the works? The children, Caroline and John Jr., are too young to make the journey on foot, and so they travel by car to the funeral mass. Today is actually John's third birthday. He was just too young to process it. And so even during the funeral, he was asking for his daddy um, at the Capitol for the line and state ceremony. They gave him a little flag and he asked for one to take to his daddy. The procession reaches St. Matthew's at 12.14 p.m., almost three days exactly from the moment the president was shot. Inside, Cardinal Cushing delivers a mass to 1,200 assembled guests. Cardinal Cushing is a longtime friend of the Kennedys. Indeed, he had presided over Jack and Jackie's wedding just 10 years earlier. When the service ends, Jackie emerges with her children to watch the casket begin its trip to Arlington National Cemetery. She'll go along for the burial, but the children will be taken home. John Jr., though he can't fully understand what has happened, is enthralled by the pomp and circumstance of the procession. 
Young John was mesmerized by all the military pageantry, and he loved to salute and walk around with guns. And uh, but he was left-handed by nature, and so when he would be saluting, oftentimes he would salute with his left hand. And the Secret Service agents would try to get him to use the right hand, and sometimes he would, and sometimes he wouldn't. But when Mrs. Kennedy, who I'm sure had planned this out, um, came down to the bottom of the steps at the sidewalk of St. Matthew's and they had placed her husband's casket, flag draped now, on top of the caisson, ready to march off to Arlington Cemetery across the Potomac River, uh, she leaned over to John and said, uh, you can say goodbye to Daddy now and salute him. And that little boy, just turning three on that very day, stepped away from his mother, came to perfect attention, and ripped off a perfect military salute with his right hand, and in doing so, broke the hearts of certainly all Americans and all the world. At 3.15 p.m., November 25th, 1963, Jackie Kennedy and her brothers-in-law light the eternal flame in Arlington National Cemetery. It is the end of Jack Kennedy's journey, and in some ways, the end of an era. Here's author David Farber. I think one of the things that people sort of misunderstand when they look back at the Kennedy years is how much 1963 still looked like 1953. These were relatively modest and moderate times as compared to what we think of as the 1960s. And the death of Kennedy is a piece of that story because it kind of showed that the old rules didn't work, that great surprises were in store for the American people. And the assassination marks the end of the 50s in some ways and the beginning of the 1960s. I'm historian Steve Gillen, and this is 24 Hours After, The JFK Assassination, Episode 8, The Aftermath. On the morning of November 22, 1963, Jack Kennedy was President of the United States. He was the youthful symbol of American optimism, pledging to send men to the moon, to lead the fight against communism, to usher in a new era of growth and prosperity for the United States. 24 hours later, he was dead. Kennedy's body lay in repose in the East Room of the White House, and a new era of American politics had begun. The man who would succeed him in the presidency couldn't have been more different. Lyndon Johnson exuded none of Kennedy's charisma and charm, but he was an ambitious man, and in Kennedy's death, he saw great opportunity. In the years following the assassination, Lyndon Johnson will use JFK's martyrdom to pursue a liberal political agenda that will change the world. But in doing so, he'll sow the seeds for his own downfall, allowing a war in Vietnam to escalate and empowering his longtime rival Bobby Kennedy to rise against him. In this, the season finale of 24 Hours After, we'll ask, how did the assassination of JFK change American politics? It's a question that historians like myself have spent years discussing. And it leads to another question. Could the accomplishments of the 1960s, from civil rights to the war on poverty, have happened without his unfortunate death? Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was almost 2 a.m., 14 hours or so after the assassination of JFK, when Lyndon Johnson summons Jack Valenti, Bill Moyers, and Cliff Carter to his bedroom. The three men had all been with him in Dallas that morning. They had spent the day frantically advising the new president, huddling with him on Air Force One, at the White House, and now back at Johnson's residence. Johnson had invited them to sleep there, in part to help them get an early start the following morning. Now, they're exhausted, but the new president is a ball of energy. Johnson had a habit of meeting with aides while settling down in bed for the night. Ladybird would try her best to sleep, putting a pillow over her head while Lyndon issued instructions to his team. Now, with the lights low and TV news playing softly in the background, the three men try to stay alert as Johnson speaks. Here's Randall Woods, author of LBJ, Architect of American Ambition. And for an hour, he begins to outline his legislative program, what he wants to do. He said, what I'm really interested in is the progressive uh, domestic agenda that Jack Kennedy had put forward. I'm going to get Kennedy's tax cut bill out of committee, Johnson declares. Then I'm going to pass Kennedy's civil rights bill, which has been hung up too long in Congress and I'm going to pass it without changing a single comma or a word. Johnson went on to list multiple other priorities, a voting rights bill, an education bill, a bill for universal medical insurance. He said, I'm really enthusiastic about this. We want to extend the New Deal, federal aid education, civil rights, um, Medicare, Medicaid, these things. I think he did that because he was ambitious, but I also think he did it to make himself feel better, to take his mind off what had happened, and to make some sense out of it, give it some purpose. Taken together, it was a hugely ambitious agenda, a progressive vision that would transform American society and the political landscape for decades. As Jack Valenti would later recall, before he was president for a full day, LBJ laid out for the three of us in his bedroom what later became the design for the great society. Now that he was in command, he was committed to the shattering of the political and social structure. Finally, at 3.09 a.m., Cliff Carter speaks up. It's getting late, Mr. President, he says. Johnson looks at the clock on his bedside table. We'll be leaving here at 8 a.m., he tells them. The men retire to their quarters to catch a few hours of sleep. Left unresolved is a big question. How in the world were they going to get all of this through Congress? The answer to that question would become clear five days later. On November 27th, Lyndon Johnson stood before a joint session of Congress for his first major speech as president. Millions of Americans tuned in to the televised address. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the House, 
members of the Senate, my fellow Americans. All I have, I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. The greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time. Today, John Fitzgerald Kennedy lives on in the immortal words and works that he left behind. Johnson opens by invoking his fallen predecessor. It's an expected start, to be sure, but it marks the beginning of a political strategy that will define Johnson's administration and in time contribute to his downfall. Here's David Farber, author of The Age of Great Dreams. He wants to use, to be blunt, Kennedy's horrible death to push forward the legislation that had all been stalemated. You know, Kennedy had not passed much. The work of the Kennedy administration has been left unfinished. Now, Johnson says, America must unite to carry on that work, no matter how difficult it might seem. On the 20th day of January, in 1961, John F. Kennedy told his countrymen that our national work would not be finished in the first thousand days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But he said, let us begin. Today, in this moment of new resolve, I would say to all my fellow Americans, let us continue. Lyndon Johnson is not known for his skills as an orator, but let us continue will come to be regarded as one of the most important speeches in American history. Johnson's message is simple, but powerful. The best way for us to honor Kennedy's death is to enact his agenda. This is our challenge, not to hesitate, not to pause, not to turn about and linger over this evil moment, but to continue on our course so that we may fulfill the destiny that history has set for us. There's not a lot of time for nostalgia for the great uh, thousand days of John F. Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson moves, and that's just his way. That's who he is. John Kennedy's death commands what his life conveyed, that America must move forward. So let us here highly resolve that John Fitzgerald Kennedy did not live or die in vain. Don't let Kennedy's murder be for nothing, Johnson says. It's a sly political gambit, and it works. The death of the president was a rallying point for most Americans. They rallied around the new president. They understood the moment of fragility the country was in. And Lyndon Johnson, great politician, great feel for the pulse of the nation, seized on that. And he seized on it in Congress. He uses the death of the president. And he says, 
colleagues, we we have to move forward. We have to continue in his own words. He gives that speech. He rallies the flag. And, and it works. It takes months still, but legislation starts to move. The logjam gets broken. The agenda that Lyndon Johnson lays out in his famous speech comes to be known as the Great Society. And what he meant by that was that America was the most prosperous country in the world, the militarily strongest country in the world. How could you sort of use that synergy to do something spectacular? And he coined the phrase, the Great Society. And what he meant was all Americans should be able to participate in the greatness that was the United States. Black Americans, poor Americans, all Americans. And that was his dream for America. It's somewhat ironic that Johnson would invoke the memory of Jack Kennedy to pass the Great Society, because Kennedy himself was not particularly focused on domestic policy. John Kennedy thought that the basis of his presidential greatness would be in managing the Cold War. That's where he put his energies. That wasn't who Lyndon Johnson was. And Lyndon Johnson, you know, again, this spectacular politician, he wanted to be a great man. He wanted to be a great president. And quite differently than John Kennedy, he saw the great issue of his time as being race, racial justice, the civil rights movement. And so I think he put his energies into those domestic policies, into racial justice, integration, as his his reach for greatness. He wanted to be Franklin Roosevelt, and race was going to be critical to that. And so, the first major battle he takes on as president is to pass the Civil Rights Act, which had been stalled in Congress for months. The premise of the Civil Rights Act is simple. It outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And on a practical level, it will have one enormous impact, to put an end to legal segregation. Lyndon Johnson isn't the only figure using the legacy of Jack Kennedy to rally support for civil rights. Others, like the Reverend Martin Luther King, invoke his name as well. Our nation has known a dark day and a dreary night. That same president was cut down by an assassin bullet on Elm Street in Dallas, Texas. And I think the passage of the civil rights bill is a lasting tribute to the memory of the late John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Today, the idea that any member of Congress would publicly defend segregation seems too shocking to believe. But in 1963, segregation was supported by most Southern Democratic senators, and so a block of them came together to filibuster the legislation. We are not yet ready to surrender. In our opposition to this bill, which we feel is a perversion, of the American way of life and a great blow at the right of dominion over private property that has been the genesis of our greatness. That's the voice of Georgia Democratic Senator Richard Russell, who further proclaimed, we will resist to the bitter end any measure or any movement which would tend to bring about social equality. The filibuster lasts for more than 50 days, but finally, 
Thanks in no small part to clever strategizing from Johnson and his Senate allies, the Southerners are defeated. On July 2nd, 1964, President Johnson signs the bill into law. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. It's a tremendous, historic victory, but it comes at a great cost. John Kennedy politically didn't want to touch that third rail of politics race. He knew what it would cost him. And remember, he barely squeaked through in 1960. He's terrified he'll lose in 64 over race. Lyndon Johnson, he understood the consequences. He famously says when he signs the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I've just lost the entire South. And he's right. (laughs) And the Democrats have had a hard time winning the South. The white South, which had been the most Democratic part of the United States electorate, falls away from the Democratic Party over race. Fred Harris was a senator from Oklahoma in 1964. He says Johnson was well aware of what he was doing. He knew what the Rights Act was going to do to him politically and to the Democrats in the South. I think that makes what he did uh, much more courageous and valuable. I think he felt really deeply as his core belief that he had to do something about poverty and about racism. And it turned out, of course, he did more against poverty and racism than any president before or afterwards. Though Johnson had alienated the South, his use of Kennedy's legacy and his swift action on civil rights and the economy made him a broadly popular president. A year into his administration, his approval rating was nearly 70%. He won the 1964 election in a landslide and in short order passed many more of his priorities, including the Voting Rights Act, the Higher Education Act, and the Immigration and Nationality Act. But politics is the art of compromise, and to earn the votes for a sweeping agenda, Johnson makes some sacrifices which begin to undermine his standing with the liberal wing of his party. Specifically, he escalates the war in Vietnam. Here's Randall Woods again. It's the most consequential presidency of the 20th century, in both positive and negative ways. I mean, Vietnam was, you know, what uh, what do you call it, a dumpster fire. But it was linked to the success of the great society. 58,000 American soldiers that died in Vietnam were sacrificed on the altar of civil rights. Because in this country, the people who tended to be most aggressive, most hawkish on Vietnam, were also the most racist. If Johnson had pulled out of Vietnam, there's no way he could have gotten the great society passed. No way. And he made a, he made a deliberate choice. And, you know, it killed him. Johnson's support for the war isn't just unpopular with the progressive base. It also further alienates an old enemy, Bobby Kennedy. 
Bobby had served as Johnson's attorney general for just long enough to see the Civil Rights Act passed. In the fall of 1964, he left the administration to run for an open Senate seat in New York. He won. And though he often voted for Johnson's agenda, their personal animosity continued. Bobby disliked the way that Johnson used his brother's legacy for political purposes, especially when it came to Vietnam. Here's historian Jeff Seschel, the author of Mutual Contempt. The fact that uh, the debts to JFK were not regularly acknowledged was a continuing uh, source of, of unhappiness for Robert Kennedy. Then, down the line, and this is significant, the disagreements began. And Johnson, acting on his own behalf and pursuing his own instincts, begins to take steps, whether in terms of the scope of the Great Society or whether in terms of the war in Vietnam that Robert Kennedy believes his brother never would have taken. And so they have two divergent notions of what the Kennedy legacy actually is. Johnson still believes that whether we're talking about Vietnam or anything else, that he is simply pursuing the Kennedy policy. But when Robert Kennedy disagrees with that statement, it is very difficult to claim otherwise. And that becomes the nature of their feud for the remainder of their years. By 1968, Lyndon Johnson's political support has collapsed. His approval rating is hovering in the 30s. He had driven away the conservative flank of his party with the Civil Rights Act. And now, by intensifying the war in Vietnam, he alienated the progressives as well. By 1968, it has become very difficult for Robert Kennedy to explain to his supporters around the country why he would not challenge Lyndon Johnson for the presidency and whether he was not acting like a shameful politician himself by shrinking from the challenge when he had made so clear in his statements and his actions over the course of the last couple of years that he thought that the war in Vietnam was wrong and needed to be brought to an end. And so, on March 16th, 1968, Robert Kennedy does the unthinkable. Standing in the same room where his brother had started his run for president eight years prior, RFK announces his candidacy against Lyndon Johnson. It's a devastating blow to the sitting president. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. I run because it is now unmistakably clear that we can change these disastrous, divisive policies only by changing the men who are now making them. As Johnson said late in life, it was the thing that he had feared from the beginning of his presidency, that Robert Kennedy claiming the fallen standard of, of his brother would lead the charge against Lyndon Johnson as a usurper and would take the presidency away from him. He really had feared this from the beginning, and now it was finally coming to pass. Ironically, much of Bobby's political advantage was a result of his close association with his brother's legacy, a legacy that Johnson had worked hard to elevate. Here's Randall Woods. And Bobby Kennedy would use the saint, if you will, that uh, Linda Johnson helped create out of Jack Kennedy. He would use that claiming to be that person's heir. Super liberal on civil rights, uh, on anti-poverty. Bobby Kennedy steps forward and claims to be the heir of the Jack Kennedy 
that Lyndon Johnson created. Johnson knew that a challenge from Bobby Kennedy would be very difficult to overcome. But politics aside, Johnson also worried about his health. He had suffered a heart attack before becoming vice president, and it had troubled him ever since. He was so concerned about his health that in 1967, he actually commissioned a study to try to predict when he might die. It concluded that his death would occur in 1973 when he was 64. As it turned out, the study was correct. Facing a strong primary challenge and ill health, Lyndon Johnson decides to withdraw from the 1968 campaign. It's a stunning end and a bitter reward for passing the most ambitious liberal agenda in history. With Johnson gone from the race, Robert Kennedy is a strong contender to win the nomination. If he does, he'll face a familiar adversary, Richard Nixon, the same man his brother Jack had defeated in 1960. But then, tragedy strikes the Kennedy family once again. Hey, it's 12.02 a.m., June 5th, 1968, and Bobby Kennedy is celebrating. He has just won the California and South Dakota primaries. It's a major accomplishment for his campaign. Standing in front of hundreds of supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, he makes brief remarks before leaving the stage. My thanks to all of you, and I'm on to Chicago, and let's win. Bobby goes looking for a press room and decides to take a shortcut through the hotel's kitchen. He's shaking hands with a member of the kitchen staff when shots ring out. A young man of Palestinian origin named Siron Siron, perhaps motivated by Bobby's support for Israel, shoots him three times and wounds five others before he is subdued. Kennedy is rushed to a nearby hospital where he undergoes extensive surgery. Finally, his press secretary appears before the television cameras. I have a short announcement to read, which I will read uh, at this time. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The assassination of John F. Kennedy was a tragedy that united a nation rallying America in grief behind Kennedy's hopeful, idealistic vision of the future. Buttressed by Lyndon Johnson's ambition and political savvy, his death stiffened our resolve to pursue transformative, progressive policies and a more equitable, just society. Together, we could end hate, 
discrimination, and poverty. But Robert Kennedy's murder, coming on the heels of the assassinations of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, represented to some the end of that era of hope. Here's Mark Lawrence, author of The End of Ambition. Jack Kennedy asked Americans what they could do for their country. He suggested that the United States was prepared to pay any price, bear any burdens to achieve its objectives, not just at home, but internationally. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And then John Kennedy is assassinated. Something has happened in the motor stand by, please. And a little later, Martin Luther King is assassinated. My husband often told the children that if a man had nothing that was worth dying for, then he was not fit to live. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated in 1968. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country. So I think that in retrospect, the Kennedy assassination stands out as the first of these blows that made it seem to a lot of Americans more difficult to achieve those big dreams that had been articulated so forcefully in the early part of, of the 1960s. The Kennedy assassination viewed from our day stands out as one of a series of violent acts that played out across the 1960s that have tended to lead Americans to doubt the possibilities of those ambitious, idealistic impulses that were so much in the forefront in the early part of that all-important decade. For Lyndon Johnson, the deaths of Jack and Bobby Kennedy marked tragic bookends to his presidency. Here's Jeff Seschel. The death of Robert Kennedy was complicated, to put it mildly, for Lyndon Johnson. Obviously, he felt no closeness only antipathy toward Robert Kennedy. But it was horrifying on a human level and, and for the country to go through this again. And now Johnson's presidency was bracketed by the assassinations of two Kennedys. Johnson, at the same time, had to look at it from his self-interested perspective. And he knew he would never fare well against the kind of mythical what-might-have-beens of a second John Kennedy term that one could imagine, and many people in the country did, that if John Kennedy had lived, and if John Kennedy had been reelected in 1964, that we wouldn't have a war in Vietnam, and we wouldn't have these riots in the cities, and campuses wouldn't be in a state of revolt, and everything that was wrong and sick in American life wouldn't have happened if only John Kennedy had lived. 
And now Johnson understood the power of myth, and he could see that at the tail end of his presidency, as he was leaving office because he couldn't face another campaign, that there was going to be a whole other set of of what might have been. What if Jack Kennedy had not taken that route through Dallas on November 22nd, 1963? What if Lee Harvey Oswald had remained in the Soviet Union instead of returning in 1962? What if the driver of Kennedy's limousine hit the gas as soon as the first shot rang out? What if Kennedy had survived? Before his death, Kennedy had struggled to pass his domestic agenda. He was concerned about the political consequences of pushing hard on civil rights, and he was more focused on Cuba and the Cold War than he was on voting rights and other hallmarks of the Great Society. It begs the question, could Kennedy have pursued his domestic agenda as successfully as Lyndon Johnson did in his place? On the other hand, without the unity and momentum made possible by Kennedy's death, could President Johnson have acquired the political capital needed to push that same agenda through Congress? Without a Johnson presidency, would the Democratic Party have split so dramatically in the 1960s? According to some scholars, JFK hoped that a landslide victory in 1964 would give him the mandate to pull the United States out of Vietnam, perhaps saving thousands of lives and avoiding the chaos of the anti-war movement. The assassination of JFK changed America forever in ways that were large and small, personal and universal, and that we still can't completely comprehend. It left Caroline and John Kennedy to grow up without a father. It led Lee Oswald to his death and left Jack Ruby in a jail cell. It potentially hastened the passage of the Civil Rights Act and worsened the war in Vietnam. And it fueled partisan polarization that continues unabated to this day. Sitting in his bedroom the night of JFK's murder, speaking to his aides while Lady Bird tried to sleep, Lyndon Johnson laid out his plan for his administration, not just out of political ambition, but to try to find some sense of purpose in Jack Kennedy's death. Looking back on it all, what purpose can we find in this tragedy? In 2011, on the 50th anniversary of her father's inauguration, Caroline Kennedy had this to say. It's hard to put into words how much it means when people step forward to say that 50 years later, my father's ideals still inspire and that his vision for America still resonates. This morning was a wonderful chance to remember and rededicate ourselves to what's best about America and ask once again how we can give back our best to this country that has given me, us all so much. The challenges facing America today in many ways look the same as those confronting President Kennedy in 1960. An aggressive Russia, racial injustice, political division, And Kennedy warned us that we would need to come together to confront those challenges. The work wouldn't be done in one administration, he told us, but let us begin. Today, the best way to honor his death is the same as it was in 1963. It's to continue. This is 24 hours after the JFK assassination. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original 
produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Senator Fred Harris, David Farber, Mark Lawrence, Barbara Perry, Jeff Seschel, and Randall Woods. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixing. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.